Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're returning to the topic of realism in RPGs. And this time we'll be talking about settings instead of mechanics. Before we get into all that realistic good stuff, let's have a little chat about what's going on. You mean out there in the real world? Yes, yes. Oh, well, whatever passes for reality. I've, I've never quite got a grip on it. But one harsh reality that is approaching us is the shutdown of Google+. Now, you may be aware that we've used Google+, and Google+, community in particular, as the main online home for the good friends of Jackson Elias for some time. Google have decided to shutter uh, Google+, and are doing it a bit faster than they initially announced. So it's going away on the 2nd of April, which isn't far away now. So we are moving over to other places. And where can they find us now, Scott? We have a lot of people now on Discord. There is a link to our Discord server from blasphemousthomes.com. We already have a Facebook page, so you can always find us there and, and chat with us there. And we have now set up a subreddit for ourselves called Good Friends of JE. It's already linked to from our website, but I'll, I'll link to it from the show notes. Now, this is one for our Patreon backers. We are now releasing full recordings of each episode out on Patreon. Almost entirely unedited. If there are a few things that we feel we really can't say in public, then we've taken those out. But they usually by me. (laughs) Yeah, it's usually Matt complaining about things that we can't, you know, even bring up here. So basically, if you're a Patreon backer, when the regular episode goes out, there's another episode which is about twice the length of us coughing, saying um a lot more and talking over each other general dithering <laughs> yeah i mean this umthing monkey boy that's all scott this isn't meant to be a replacement for the actual episodes i mean this is more there for people who are interested in sort of a behind the scenes look at what it's like if you were standing around with us in paul's spare bedroom as we record paul not only cuts out a lot of the dross but he does post-production work tidies things up um when we sing he mixes the songs so what do you get here for example i mean this is the true horror you get the raw material that we turn into the songs not the finished songs themselves and dear lord is some of that fucked up shit And Patreon backers will also find in the new RSS feed there on Patreon, they'll find readings of Pickman's model and the music of Eric Zahn, read by our very own Scott, and The Outsider, read by me. And also, slowly creeping up on us, the Blasphemous Tome issue 4B is due for release in June. This will be a PDF release. (laughs) And that'll be also available to backers only. A week ago at the time of recording, I had a little excursion up to Birmingham with the good folks from How We Roll. As some of you may be aware, I've been uh, guesting as a, a keeper on the How We Roll podcast, Natural Play Call of Cthulhu podcast, running our pulp campaign, The Two-Headed Serpent, for them. And this Pod UK thing, a convention, was this a sort of showcase for UK podcasters. 
And there, there was a huge range of podcasts there. there. There were a fair number of audio dramas like Orphans, Wooden Overcoats, Victorosity. And there was a true crime podcast from the BBC World Service and NKR in Norway called Death in Ice Valley, which is a huge podcast if you haven't encountered it. In amongst all these people, they invited How We Roll to come along and do a live game in front of the audience there, which is not something I've ever been involved with, but but I ran Lee Carr's fantastic little demo scenario, The Necropolis, which is available as a free download from the, the Chaosium website for a, a group of four members of How We Roll, plus a special guest, Dirk the Dice from the Grognar Files. And it went down a storm. I was surprised at how well an audience who wasn't there at a gaming convention, but as a a general podcast convention, bought into the idea of us creating a narrative on the fly with an RPG. We we had people come up to us afterwards saying that they'd never played an RPG, didn't really understand the mechanics of what we were doing, but enjoyed it as a spectacle. So that was an experience. Now I have a word of perhaps a word of caution, Uh, an unpleasant tale in real life. Sometime before Christmas, a person came along to the Milton Keynes Role Playing Games Club, a new person, and they presented themselves as having some sort of condition or disability, which was calmed by them having their mobile phone in front of them. And Members of the club accepted that and challenged it a bit, as I understand. None of us three actually witnessed this, but we've been told about it. It became apparent that this person was actually just videoing and live streaming everything that was happening before them for a audience that they had who would watch these things for entertainment but mostly for mockery yeah i mean it was basically like a prank video yeah he'd announced it i think as that he was going to go along to the incels convention or something like that and you know basically you know look at all these geeks i'm going to go along and laugh at them Uh, from what i understand he was quite confrontational and winding people up and trying to get a reaction out of them so really the reason i'm mentioning this is just really as a warning to other people that this kind of thing might happen. And I guess we know it might happen, but it hadn't occurred to me that it would happen at the Milton Keynes Role Playing Games Club. And I think people try and be very inclusive and open to different people, quite rightly so. And this guy was totally exploiting that. You know, it's been resolved now. The guy's been banned. But it was unpleasant for all those involved, I think. That's it, really, but just... Be careful. Absolutely. Be careful and be aware of these things. And now back to realism, this time in RPG settings. Once again, what do we mean by real, man? Well, yeah, this is an eternal question. What is reality? <laughs> well, both I, Paul and I are looking at Matt here because I, well, I was I was actually more thinking of one thing we we're discussing before coming on air is some reading material that I've been given by my work to have a look at, and this question does actually come up in the book. <laughs> does it? Um, yeah, it, it discusses what are the nature of intangibles, and it's pretty much the opposite of reality. So in this right. case, I'll just spin it on its head. Real is the opposite of intangible. <laughs> what are intangibles in terms of your work? The the opposite of real. Well, yeah, but software development costs, goodwill assets, basically the um, extra life that you can put on a project that you've brought, such another company, and it has a useful lifespan, which you then have to erode off your P&L. So they're kind of real, but they're not things you can hold and... 
and Quant- one, quantify. A perfect example would be a footballer at a club, their reputation and their skill that they've got, or a brand okay. like Coca-Cola, for instance. The brand is worth a hell of a lot more than the company itself. Right. Which has absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about today. I know, that we went off on a complete tangent. <laughs> you, you asked me what was real. So. <laughs> but I mean, we talk about things in role-playing games, you talk about aliens or cryptids and things like that. And there are people in the real world who, in their head, that is the real world. That is reality. Yeah, but I think what we're going to talk about here very much ties in with our previous discussion about RPG mechanics, where what's more important is consensus. What's more important is is verisimilitude. I mean, yes, people won't agree with the nuts and bolts of what's real, either in the real world or within the canon of a game setting, but we need to find tools for getting them to buy into this reality that we are between us at the gaming table creating. So what about, like, you talk about a consensus. In, just going back to the real world before we talk about role-playing game settings, because the real world is it's almost like a setting um, <laughs> that we have to have a consensus on. So, I mean, think about anti-vaxxers, you know, people who are against vaccinating because they think it causes autism or, or whatever, based on um, some guy's reports, which have now been debunked. Which were debunked almost immediately. And, but people yeah, buy yes. into that. Yeah. And we're almost losing the consensus against that as yeah. significantly enough. It doesn't have to be a, a majority that are against it. If there's a big enough minority, it undermines the whole vaccination scheme because if there's enough people not vaccinating, it collapses the whole immunity. Oh, I, I, I agree. And, and I think the internet and social media in particular has done more to undermine our idea of consensus reality than anything else in human history. I mean, this is drifting off topic, but I think we're living in quite dangerous times in that respect. But... Whether or not we think we can establish anything like consensus reality on a mass scale in the real world, there are things we can do at the gaming table to at least do it. But I I think that's an interesting point. I mean, we'll never do this absolutely. There will always be players at the table who, when you're putting certain elements into play, will just go, well, that's wrong or that's bullshit or it wouldn't work that way. Mm. What we can do in this discussion is perhaps talk about ways that we can incorporate that, mitigate that or, or deal with that. So I guess to explore this idea of reality in role-playing game settings, I'd like to sort of say that I'm coming from a general consensus on what we have in reality, the real world, and comparing that with how we explore it in different role-playing game settings. So I'd like to start off by looking at a role-playing game setting. Let's start off with the game Call of Cthulhu, as that's what our podcast is often about. I mean, what do you think about Call of Cthulhu? I, there was this idea which is central to Lovecraft's writings, which he mentioned, I think it might have been supernatural horror and literature, which is that the more realistic you make the world in your weird fiction, the more attention to real-world details you put in, the more it acts as a counterpoint to the weird elements that you throw in. Perversely, for a game as drenched in fantasy and, and unreality as Call of Cthulhu is, the real elements, the real-world elements, the historical elements, the setting elements, are probably more important here than they are in most other games. I think that's a big selling point for Call of Cthulhu, because... Anybody coming to your game who wants to join in and doesn't know anything about Lovecraft, they've never read anything about the mythos or you know anything to do with Call of Cthulhu, you can just give them the character sheet or get them to create a character and they'll say, well, what, what's this all about? And you say, well, 
it's if it's 1920s let's say so you're a person in the 1920s perhaps you're in New York what would you like to be you know maybe you give them some guidance you're, you're a professional perhaps you're a, a lawyer or a librarian or whatever but ostensibly you're a real person so just make up a person that's very easy to buy into I don't need knowledge about a different setting. Yeah, I mean, this is something I see quite a lot on places like Reddit, where people are saying, I'm about to start playing Call of Cthulhu, what do I need to know about the Cthulhu mythos? And if you're a player and not a keeper, then I'd say the answer is nothing. If anything, it puts you in the mindset of a lot of Lovecraft's characters. Well, actually, I mean, this is probably drifting slightly off topic. No, I mean, Lovecraft's characters, I mean, a lot of them are fairly well-versed in the mythos. But if we approach Call of Cthulhu more like a, you know, a horror film, where the horrors unfold and people are making these discoveries and encountering revelations, then it's probably more effective if the player isn't well-versed in the canon. I think that's a good point. Often when I run Call of Cthulhu, I'm running it like a... A horror film story it's not necessarily that related to the mythos canon and most horror films that are made are set in the, our modern day and they're set in a what seems to be at the start a realistic world and, and that allows us again to buy into that premise of the film because i can imagine myself lost in the woods in blair witch or you know going backpacking in the ritual or something so it's easy to buy into and relate to so, Matt, let me ask you this. You're GMing a game for a bunch of players who've never played Call of Cthulhu before, you know, maybe at a convention or, or elsewhere. You're establishing the game world to them. Uh, you're bringing them into this world you're creating. I mean, the Cthulhu mythos elements aside, perhaps you'll bring those in later in the game. How do you go about establishing the reality of that world for them? Pretty simply, actually. I'll just say... As far as you're concerned, this is the real world in the 1920s. But in terms of the preparation that you might do? or That's it. <laughs> but I'm thinking in terms of if it's set in a particular location, that there's a real world location, that you, you know, you'd make sure you're familiar with that, that if it's set in a particular historical time period, ah, you'd make okay. sure you're familiar with that. If mm -hmm. it involves particular real people, you'd do research on them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, in which case there is an example I can think of then that could help inform this. A scenario that I've been working on, which I've run before at conventions, which is set down in South Africa. Because I normally ask this, also especially to judge who am I supposed to look out for in the room that knows more than I do. Um, which is Kill them first. Yeah. <laughs> right, you're the first up against the wall when the dark young comes. Right. Is so Who knows about the Witswaters and Gold Rush? I promptly watch the tumbleweed roll through the room most <laughs> of the time. But then I'll explain about, right, this is the setting that you have. This is the geographical setting. This is the reason why the area is like it is. Meteorite came down millions of years ago, formed this massive crater miles and miles and miles across. Largest gold deposits in the world are located here, but buried so far underground because of the old sea that used to be here. Basically go through some very high-level details about mm. the, what the area looks like. And then jump forward a few million years to say, right, that's the geographical aspect. Here's the human aspect. You've got what was the South African colonies, you've got the Boers that came down here, they're gradually pushed further and further north, and then you start going into the social-political aspects of them being here, the war that broke out recently, quick overview and said, right, that's where you are now. But perhaps what's more interesting to me then is what happens in that situation where someone does pipe up and say, oh yeah, yeah, I did my thesis on that. Perfect, in which case, if you want any historical details, go to that person, because they are going to know more than, more than I am about the minutiae. And, and then what happens if that person contradicts something that's fundamental to your scenario? Hopefully it will be something so minute that it doesn't actually cause a problem, because I wouldn't be hinging on something in the historical context that would be so important that that could happen. 
it becomes more colourful backdrop, not something that is like a jigsaw puzzle inherently relies on that one particular piece making any sense. So if they had details to add, you'd hope they'd kind of embellish the setting. Yep. If anything, it will provide more colour. It won't contradict with the ideas that I have. What you just said sounded like, <laughs> to some people listening to this, might sound like you're giving a two-hour lecture <laughs> um, oh, about, not, about no. the setting. How long would you take over that? Uh, probably five, ten minutes. Yeah. I've, I've been with you when you've done that, and it's often quite an interesting experience. You know, as a player, I'm learning about a different setting, and that information lets me sort of buy into the setting. There's enough there to get to grips with it. But, I mean, that's a very specific example, and in some respects, the relative obscurity of that setting makes it perhaps a bit safer in terms of creating that consensus of reality, because people won't necessarily have any expectations that might clash with what you're establishing there. So let's say you're setting a game in 1920s New York or 1920s London, and people have got a lot of expectations about what that's like. Let's go for an example that comes up quite a lot in various Call of Cthulhu communities, which is the role of minorities or the role of women in certain historical events. It's interesting. I see people getting hung up on the historical accuracy of Call of Cthulhu games in very specific ways. People who are willing to accept things like, you know, fudges to travel times and, you know, incomplete research about, you know, particular locations and stuff like that. As soon as you have, say, an openly gay character or something like that, they say, you know, that's not historically accurate. What do you do about conflicts like that when they come up at the gaming table? Or have you ever had conflicts like that? Coming up at the gaming table... I'm struggling to think of one, to be honest. I can imagine a case where you might be going into a posh hotel or a posh club in 1920s America that wouldn't admit African-Americans. Um, but if you had African-American player characters, you're perhaps not going to want to stop them entering the club and sort of bring that issue up. So you might gloss over that in effect. But I can't actually think of when that's occurred in my game, but I can see that could be a consideration. Is this something you've ever come across, Matt? Not in an extreme example. I think there has been a game where I've played in. This This might be me partly misremembering something based on what, uh, what Paul said, but I'm fairly sure I played in, I think it was a Gaslight game, where it was more around the fact it was a club, but it was more a case that all oh, the female characters aren't allowed in, that this is a gentleman's club. Mm. Yeah, I did something very similar in one of the World War Cthulhu Cold War scenarios that I said, which I did a bit of research into the way that the intelligence services in the UK operated at the time. And a lot of them used gentlemen's clubs in uh, the St. James's area of London as sort of informal meeting spots. Of course, these are gentlemen's clubs. Mm. Uh, so immediately, that is a barrier to any female investigators in that role. Yeah, it was just a question of how to handle that. There are a few things that occur to me. I mean, one is exactly what you just said, Paul. Gloss over it, it doesn't matter. Another is that you can embrace it as part of the setting, that this is perhaps a challenge some of the characters are facing. You do have, in that example, female investigators who are being discriminated against, who you know, are finding themselves sidelined unfairly. Perhaps that plays into something that the player wants to explore about the character. But if the player doesn't, is it fair as a GM to say that is not historically accurate, it's going to break the reality of the game if your, your female investigator goes into this gentleman's club? 
I'd be more concerned about how much fun the player was having at the game rather than how historically accurate it was in terms of its content. So I'd be more than willing, in inverted commas, bend the rules of historical accuracy um, to let them in so they could actually engage with the game rather than sit there twiddling the thumbs while the male PCs got to do their thing. Screw that if it means a player of mine's going to be unhappy. There's a point I saw in some discussion all years back about the portrayal of historical racism, sexism, homophobia, bigotry of all kinds, which is that, yes, it can be an interesting plot element. Yes, it can help establish the reality of a historical setting. But on the other hand, if you've got players for whom elements of that are part of their daily life in the modern world, and they don't want to engage with this as plot elements, then... Is there anything wrong with just saying, well, in this particular setting, we're not going to bother about that? Or put it to the players. I think I might say, Scott, your character wouldn't actually be allowed in here. Mm. But Matt's character has got a very high credit rating. And if you're with him, then nobody's going to question it. Is that a problem for anyone? Do you want to play it like that? And just get a consensus around the table. So just step out of the role of keeper for a moment and do say, you know, yeah, this isn't historically accurate here, but for the sake of the game, we're taking this as being the case. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, there's a counter-argument to it, which I also find fairly compelling. And this, this is why the consensus of the group is so important, which is if you do gloss over stuff like that, that other people who are affected by these issues might find that insulting because you're erasing part of their cultural history. Hmm. And saying there was never actually a problem. There was never any bigotry or racism. Yeah. Well, I think like so many potential problems at the gaming table, this comes down to communication. It comes down to establishing the expectations of the group, finding out what the players are and aren't comfortable with. The problem with this is then there's a whole different class of players who don't seem to like any out-of-character decisions or out-of-character talk about the gaming world who finds that breaks their immersion in the reality of the game. So if you do stop the game and sort of say, right, yeah, I can tailor this to, you know, according to, say, whether your character is going to face discrimination getting to that club or not, they then might be taken out of the game by that because suddenly this is metagame talk and, you know, they were immersed in the character and, you know, now you're breaking the realism of the game for them by talking to them about it. I suppose that depends upon when you signpost these things in the course of the game. To keep that school happy, I think the only real option is to do it all up front from the beginning and say, Mm. look, this game is going to deal with X, Y and Z topics. I'm going to handle them in X, Y and Z fashion. Do you have a problem with it? Yes or no? Yeah, I would agree. And also, I think it needs to be highlighted. We're three white guys talking about how we'd address racism, (laughs) which is, you know, never a very good platform to be on. I think you have to put it to your group. How do you want to address these issues if they are going to be part of the setting? Yeah, I mean, if you were using Chris Spivey's Harlem Unbound game and you suddenly decided to wipe out all the historical racism that the characters in that might face, certain groups would be very unhappy with that. So I think saying this is what we're playing, these are the assumptions of the setting, these are the kinds of things the character might face, are you happy with that? If not, how Hmm. how would you like to handle it differently? We've talked about Call of Cthulhu as a setting. I'd put to you, is Call of Cthulhu a setting? No, I mean, Call of Cthulhu is, I mean, lots of different settings. I mean, yeah. for a start, there's lots of historical settings. But, but even 1920s Call of Cthulhu, is that a setting? I think sort of, because, I mean, there is source material. I mean, for example, the 1920s chapter and equipment lists and so on in the Investigator Handbook and to some extent the Keeper Rulebook. 
provide support material f- for the 1920s in the same way that perhaps setting information for a D&D setting would outline a fantasy world, that they provide certain expectations about you know, what character types fit in this, what, you know, what kind of equipment they've got access to, what their daily life might be like. I think as settings go, it seems like a less defined setting to me. Hmm. I would say a more defined setting would be something like Delta Green, which is taking a world view of things, if you like. It's modern day, but it's it's this particular modern day setting. You know, there's the Delta Green organisations and so on. Whereas if I do a Call of Cthulhu modern day game, I don't have any expectations of what that's going to be. It's modern day, but quite what the story elements are or what organisations are out there could be anything, could be totally different between modern day games. Yeah, I guess the difference is, I mean, with a historical setting, you're doing more work potentially to establish the realism of that because you're having to create this world that is slightly outside the player's personal experiences. Um, well, I mean, obviously it depends on the historical setting. I mean, if, if it was something set in the 80s or 90s, I mean, Paul and I would remember that. But if it's the 1920s, we're not quite that old. So you do actually have to create the reality of that world in a way that you don't have to in a modern-day game. Mm. And I think an even more extreme example of that, if we're talking about Call of Cthulhu specifically, is the Dreamlands. Yeah, totally. With the Dreamlands, you had this entire fantasy world, which was defined in fairly broad strokes in a number of stories by Lovecraft and has been built up by other writers and within the Call of Cthulhu game line over the last 80 years. And reality in that, I mean, we're talking about almost a dream reality there of places linking curiously, perhaps being able to create items through dreaming and so on. I mean, it's that's a very different setting. Again, it's got certain expectations. Mm. So there are certain defined bits of the reality there. There are certain locations. There are certain key characters. There are certain beliefs about how the world works and how it might be shaped by the experiences of dreamers or the minds of dreamers, or certain parts may have a more fundamental reality, the roles of the gods in there, that that establish this consensus reality of that world. Yeah, I think that's an interesting one, because in Call of Cthulhu standard, if I put a saucepan of water on a flame, the water will get hot and boil. It follows the basic laws of physics that we expect in the real world, whereas in Dreamlands... Who knows? Maybe it doesn't. You put that pot on a, on a flame and suddenly it turns into a marga bird and runs away. Well, yeah. Well, except really stuff like that doesn't happen in the Lovecraft Dreamland stories. I mean, yes, all right. I'm being You've a bit got, extreme, but yeah. well, you can get in a boat and end up on the moon. Yes. Um, or you have characters like King Karanis uh, from Dreamquest of Unknown Kadath, whose the power of his dreaming mind, or at least the power of his mind after death as an experienced dreamer, has allowed him to reshape an entire area of the dreamlands into the memories of his youth. Hmm. So, yes, I mean, reality in it is mutable. But at the same time, I think, you know, if you had that particular thing happen of you boil a, a saucepan of water and it turns into a bird and runs away, that is going to take the players straight out of the game because... Not in the dreamlands, I don't think. I, I think it is because it's a really interesting thing, I think, with having to establish the mundane details of a game. If there is a particular reason why that is happening if someone is actively willing it to happen or if there's an npc using some form of magic or if you've established that it's an area where you know lots of weird shit is happening then yes i mean if that happens on its own in isolation 
then no, I, I would find that would completely break my suspension of disbelief within a game. What would you say, Matt? Is that uh, too I, extreme? No, I've got, I've got a again a partially remembered image from uh, Dunzany's Land of Dream stories that influenced Lovecraft particularly so much where one of the routes that the protagonist takes to go back to the land of dreams takes him past this old witch's house with this like, vegetable patch out the front garden. Not only does the cat talk to him and repeatedly uh, and sarcastically deride him, but there's various other dreamers that are digging for diamonds or some other gemstones in the ground, almost like pigs scurrying around. So having that outlandish almost surreal imagery in a game. No, if anything, I think it helps to reinforce the fact that this is something completely not reality. But, mm. but I think the particular example you seized on there is fundamentally different because these are incidental details of the game world. They're things that you're building up that are within the normal experience of the NPCs, of the characters there who are doing these things and experiencing those. What you're talking about there is a particularly egregious change to reality of something that would, within the setting of the dreamlands, be unlike anything else that has happened in those particular stories. Unless there was some concrete reason unless the, for, for that happening, unless you established that this was a particularly weird event and that you know, it, it was of note, the fact that it is just happening there goes against the reality that has been established within that setting. For me, it's the fact that the dreamlands in particular are supposed to be so separate from the normal reality that human experience is defined by that it is something completely off the board where very bizarre stuff happens. For instance, like the talking cats. You mean yeah. you have those with the cats of Ulthar, you have other other examples, you get the, all the weird creatures that exist there and are just considered by the denizens of the Dreamlands to be a normal part of their reality. It's normal yeah. for them, but it's not normal for us. But, I think but, it's, it's those random weird events that actually make the setting more vibrant and alive for me. It's the fact that what you've talked about there are orbits of the setting. So, you know, a cat talks to you then you've established within the dreamland setting that cats talk. They don't talk in human speech. It's more that, you know, humans have learned the language of cats. That's, that's what is established within Lovecraft stories. And that's what's there within the rest of the dreamland stuff that's followed since then. If a cat suddenly got up on its hind legs, pulled out a top hat and cane from thin air and started doing a tap dance across the streets of Ulthar... I'd that, expect the other cats to join in. Th th that would be so completely farcical and outside the the mundane aspects of the dreamlands that you're suddenly going from playing, you know, Call of Cthulhu to playing Toon. That's some fighting talk right there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think if you're going to have the things that are in the dreamlands, are you only going to have the talking cats and the ships that go to the moon and things that are actually sort of written as canon in there and you can't have other weird things? No, it seems but, but, to me but there's, there's tone they, there. It seems to me that they give you licence to do things that, yeah, that you feel fits in with the tone. And if you felt it was justified in the tone of your scenario to have a dancing cat, it seems a bit weird when you just pick on it out of the blue. But if it sort of fits into the scenario, then I don't see that it would... But that, that's the point, if it fits into the scenario. You, as a GM or as a writer, would have to do some groundwork to establish that as part of the reality. The, the Dreamlands, as a setting, isn't giving you licence to throw in any random shit that comes to mind without a larger context. You know, Lovecraft went out of his way to create the context for these things in the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath and the Dreamland stories. 
there are expectations about the types of weird events that fit with the tone of the story. If you start throwing in completely tonally dissonant elements without you know any thought to how they're going to fit in with the, the experience of the players at the table you're going to end up just turning it into wacky chaos that will work against any buy-in that the players have. Yeah, I think that's true in any game, though, any setting. If you do things that are really out of place, then there needs to be a reason for that. Yeah, yeah I agree. If, if it is completely off the wall and makes no sense, yeah, you're playing tune. But if it's something that fits within the wider cosmology, and I think using maybe using the, the Margabird example there, it's probably more akin to something that might happen in Alice in Wonderland. Mm. But it doesn't have to be a million miles away from the Dreamlands, mm. as long as you can say that, yes, this is something... For instance, you might have a denizen of the Dreamlands there around the fire pit that you've put up, and they might treat this as completely normal, all the dreamers uh, suddenly losing their minds. Well, it's concealed itself by some sort of illusion. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just something that happens could, that is regarded yeah. as normal by everyone that lives there. And again, it's that removal that any dreamer is going to find this weird if they haven't experienced it before. But anyone hmm. that lives there doesn't. But it's nuance. It's the care that you as a keeper or you as a writer are going to have to work within to create that sense of reality for the players. Oh, it, that's a delicate balance I think any writer existing within a predetermined universe has. Yeah. That you might find it fits, but then someone else might turn around and say, no, as, as you said, then no, that fits more like in a Looney Tunes cartoon rather than in this. Mm. There are all sorts of expectations that a player might bring to a game that the keeper has got to perhaps deal with at some stage. So this idea of historical reality or the, this idea of canon, let's talk about one that's perhaps less mutable than the Dreamlands. Mm. So let's say you're running a game set in Middle Earth. Okay. And, you know, Middle-earth has got a fairly wide established canon. Tolkien went into a hell of a lot of depth in establishing his world. Yeah. You know, other people have built on that since then and uh, expanded it. How much do we have to adhere to canon there? How much do we have to, you know, work within those parameters to create a sense of reality for the people who are familiar with that game world or with that, that fantasy world? I think in a way, more than in Call of Cthulhu. If you're dealing with Call of Cthulhu, you've got the normal world and then you can stick on whatever horror elements you want. Vamp it could be vampires, werewolves, it could be Cthulhu, cultists, it could be anything that you might see in a horror film. If you're setting it in Middle-earth, then you've really got to stick with the elements of that canon, of that, of that setting. So you can't really introduce things that don't belong there, I think. But then what about specifically the example of Call of Cthulhu? There have been attempts over the years to create canon. August Erlis certainly did a lot, and people have built upon that you know, within the Call of Cthulhu game line. But Lovecraft himself was fairly self-contradictory and you know, was much more of the idea that he was building up a mythology in the same way that real-world mythologies have got lots of contradictory elements in there. Yeah. How do we deal with the, the more mutable aspects of canon there? Well, when I come to run Call of Cthulhu, I don't think I think about a canon. I think, yes, there is like Cthulhu under the sea, but not necessarily in this. You know, if I'm running the game tomorrow, I might not have Cthulhu in, in, in really under the sea. That might not be a thing. So there may be no Dunwich. I don't necessarily adhere to any of that. So it's just a blank canvas that starts with the real world and introduces some horrors to me. And that, that's interesting because I mean, I've read a number of posts online by a Lovecraft scholar and writer by the name of Bobby Deary, who's written a few books on the Cthulhu mythos and Lovecraft. 
he has been quite a vocal critic of Call of Cthulhu as a game line because he says that he sees no reason why as a game line there shouldn't be consistency why if the elements that are established in one Call of Cthulhu scenario contradict another one that breaks the game world for him he figures that as Chaosium is publishing this game world creating this game world that they have the power to make Mm. it all consistent what do you think Matt? I thought the clue was in the name personally (laughs) I rarely have a game that I'd need to worry too much about adhering to the whole canon of the whole mythos because whenever I tend to write a game I only tend to focus on one aspect of it at any one time such as if I'm writing a game it might be set in Dunwich so yes I would tear apart the Dunwich horror make sure I get the details of the location right but it doesn't mean that I have to give a shit about the city of the elder things in Antarctica I like the way you covered all bases, though. You said Dunwich and Dunwich. Yes. <laughs> there you go. See, I, I, I like to have a broad church that covers every interpretation. But, but no, I mean, that, that's, that's fundamentally a different point than the one Deary is making, that you're ignoring as something that doesn't, yeah, my, doesn't my, tie in with this. My Dunwich but, might be very different to Kem, Kevin Ross's one. But, but if, if in but, one of your yeah. games I, um, it was set in New York and I drove up through New England, might there be no Dunwich? Depends what route you take. I probably wouldn't no, have no. to go through No, no, if I totally explored New England comprehensively, might I find no Dunwich in some of your games? Um, I'd say you'd only really find it if it's relevant. It might be, oh, you'd pass a... Maybe make reference to the fact that there's the sign where it's the sign itself has fallen off the post and is in the, um, okay, is so, in the dirt. So it's sounding to me like, in your head, it would be there. Or it might be really hard to find and you might not let your players find it, in effect. But it, it is there because it's yeah. a Lovecraft game. I'd acknowledge its existence, but if it's right. not important to the story, then why pay it much attention? But, but that, that is a very different point than the one Bobby Deary makes. Because yeah. I'm saying, in my head, if I was set in a, a... Well, in whatever period, I might not have a Dunwich. Hmm. It might not be there. There may be no Innsmouth. It, it may just be real world and the horrors might be different. I'll posit another example here. There's a post I saw on Reddit the other day, which got me thinking, where someone who's who's fairly new to Call of Cthulhu and has never run a game before was asking specific details about the life cycle of Deep One hybrids. And he was very concerned as a new keeper that there were established rules to this and that mm. if he got it wrong, that he would somehow be breaking the reality of the game. Mm. Certainly, when I've used Deep Ones, for example, I've always used the biology of them and the change of hybrids and stuff like that entirely as a plot device. I've been completely inconsistent about it and come up with perhaps different in-game explanations for what's happening. But at no point have I ever felt bound by this is what other people have said, therefore it's true. I'd agree. And I think this comes from, if we compare, I think this is a good comparison, Lovecraft and Tolkien. Lovecraft didn't have a cohesive setting. He attempted to create it like myths which conflicted each other. There wasn't one overall setting in which all his stories were were set. Whereas Tolkien, it was very much about creating a new mythology for Britain based on Anglo-Saxon stories and so on. And it was very much about creating a cohesive whole from the languages upward. Um, Well, I'd I'd argue further than that, that Tolkien wasn't creating a myth, that he was creating sort of an alternate historical reality that that drew from mythology, but it didn't have the vagaries of mythology. He's he's sort of pinning down dates and exact locations and drawing maps and and giving family trees and stuff like that. So this is, you know, a hell of a lot more detail than we see in mythology. And indeed, he refers to hobbits as little people that you don't see much nowadays. It's almost like 
that is in our past. It's, it's an alternate history, if you like. And obviously there are willow trees and there are oak trees and so on. So, you know, oh, this is like the real world, which is kind of strange because, you know, is Middle Earth supposed to be a totally fictional other place or is it supposed to be sort of a somehow our history? Well, again, the clue's kind of in the name. It's Middle Earth. Yeah. When it comes to setting a game in Middle Earth... Tolkien was the only author of that. And yes, people have done a bit of expansion on it, particularly for game lines and so on, and, and maybe for the films, and, but they very much adhered to the books, largely. Whereas with Lovecraft, even during his time, other people were working with his work and with his creations, and he was basing it on some people that had gone before him as well. There is this mishmash, if you like, this collection of bits that don't necessarily tie together. So it's very easy for us to add some other bits or leave some bits out, I think. It's much more malleable. Whereas, I mean, you tend to see more of a concrete reality in this setting that's been established. I mean, if you were playing a game that was set in the 1920s and Dunwich was now you know, a seaside town in New England... And, you know, the, you know, it incorporated elements of Innsmouth as well as the Dunwich Horror. Would that undermine your sense of reality in the game, Matt? Uh, my default reaction didn't come across, I think, on the uh, on the audio of my eyebrows raising and internally going, what? Yeah, no, that I couldn't really put that together in my head. That would be, at best, maybe an alternate reality, one of the many different possibilities of, ex- of existences out there in parallel worlds within the mythos where maybe the coast has eroded to the point so far where it has gone that much inland, I, I would have to somehow justify it to myself as to how the hell that could work. Despite the fact that Dunwich is not a real place. Exactly. But it's nailed down in the story as being something that is concrete right. within the confines of that story. I guess the point that you know, I was trying to get at in the first place, which is that sense of realism for you, despite the fact that we're not dealing with real things, is very much rooted in your expectation of the fiction itself. Yeah, it's continuity with what has come before. Whereas you're saying, Paul, for you, that's much less important. Yeah, I think having Dunwich on the coast as a seaside town is a weird one. It's kind of like if, if I was presented with that in a game, yeah, I think, I think I'd buy into it. I think I'd think, this is a bit weird. What's going on here? Is this kind of some kind of alternate reality? Or has there been a lot of, an awful lot of coastal erosion? But unless there's a good reason for that, why would you do it? Because Dunwich is very much a rural backwater village stroke town. So, you know, why put it on the coast? But if there's a good reason in the scenario for it, I would expect there to be. But Otherwise, it seems a bit random. I got it. There's a big white ball of Yogg-Soth that's going to bounce down the beach and try and catch you whenever you leave. (laughs) Yes. But the entire mythos, I mean, all of weird fiction is built on examples of people doing exactly that kind of thing. If you think about Hasta... Hasta starts out as the name of a shepherd god in an Ambrose Beer story. A fairly benign god. Then you get Robert W. Chambers, who turns it into the name of a place. Then you get Lovecraft, who just mentions the name as part of one of his regular litanies. And then August Derleth, who seizes upon that and says, right, you know, this is now one of the central gods of the mythos. We should now start calling this the Hasta mythos. And, you know, Lovecraft sort of saying, what the fuck, dude? And, you know, then other writers sort of building upon that in uh, stories and role-playing games to come. So at that point, you know, Hester has been lots of different things to lots of different people. I think if I was back there at the time, before these things were historical, and somebody had established Hester as one thing, and then somebody came along and did it as something totally different, I would be like, well, why are they doing that? 
But when it's all in history, we can just sort of see it being bounced around and we're like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. But I think if you're going to reuse something differently, then is it just for weird effect or is there some other reason? And in a game, I think there needs to be some other reason. You see it an awful lot in, even in horror films. I mean, taking Dunwich as a particular example, Lucio Fulci's um, City of the Living Dead. Oh, God. Yeah, is, is, is <laughs> set in Dunwich, but it's not a Dunwich that you'd recognise at all from Lovecraft. He's just taking the name because, you know, he, he likes the associations of it. In name it, only, pretty yeah. much. I mean, would it bother you, Scott, if Dunwich was on the coast and there was a deep one selling ice creams from a van? It depends on the expectations and the tone of the game. If we've established we're playing a comical Call of Cthulhu game that is playing with the drugs... maybe it's not comical. Then, again, if we've established that we're playing a fairly surreal one, but if you're trying to establish a sense of reality within the preconceptions that Call of Cthulhu players would have, then yes, that would undermine... I think I'd have more trouble with the Deep One selling ice cream because that is such a comical image that if you're trying to create a serious game, the tonal shift is one that would break my suspension of disbelief more than the sense of the canon of the Mm. setting. Depends on the flavour of the ice cream. Yeah, I mean, if it was halibut flavour, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. As well as the the sort of canon details of setting, of, of a particular setting like Middle-earth, there are certain expectations of genre. For example, you, you'd have certain expectations if you were watching a romantic comedy, that there are formulae that are followed, there are setups, there are meetings, meet-cutes, there are reversals of fortune, there are usually happy endings... And just say uh, this ain't going to happen. Yeah, my, my only expectation is when is the chloroform going to kick in and I can finally just watch the just unless it's, oblivion. Sean, unless it's Shaun of the Dead. But there are certain things that we expect to happen in a game or in a genre. So yeah. thinking about Call of Cthulhu and some of the expectations there, how much are we willing to put up with in terms of things that are clearly unrealistic? but fit the realism of the setting. So, classic example for Call of Cthulhu. There is a cult that is performing a sinister ritual at midnight, you know, atop some distant hill, and you have been piecing together the details of this and, you know, finally learning what it is that you're up against. The keeper is sitting there and carefully, to the minute, counting every bit of time that you spend on every bit of research and so on. You finally roll up to the top of the hill to stop it and it's sort of, oh, well, we're an hour and a quarter late and they've, they've just packed up and gone home. <laughs> if anything, I'd actually be more happy with that. Because cults having done something on top of a hill is such an overdone fucking trope. I think, for God's sake, throw in something a bit more original. And having something like that where you've arrived late, actually I think, hey, this is, this is mixing it up a bit. Also, you painted a picture there, Scott, that I don't think I've ever seen. The Keeper keeping track of every minute of what the players are doing. Exactly. I've never known that. That that, That's the point I'm making, because people don't do that. That, you know, you you contrive to have people arrive at a dramatically interesting moment. You contrive to have dramatically interesting things happen in the game. You throw coincidences in. You you bump into just the right person on the street, or just the right person is shopping in the old bookshop when you walk in, and you strike up a conversation with them. Realistically, they could have left five minutes ago, because you spent five minutes it's talking to someone else down the road. Just like in films, you know, they're, they're sat there in the daylight talking about going round to the spooky old house on the hill and, you know, they're just having, like, pancakes for breakfast or something. Oh, we'll, we'll go around there this evening. And then 
cut to the next scene, it's just getting dark. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> why is it get? Why did they leave it all day? Why didn't they go down there at lunchtime? Um, or, and there's or, some, or, or, or the fantastic coincidence that happens in so many films that you know you turn on the TV set or the radio at just the right time to hear the news bulletin about you know what it is that you're interested in, which you know is is the kind of thing that yes irritates me in films sometimes. But on the other hand, if you had ten minutes and the characters just sitting there listening to the radio, talking about cheese or listening to the archers, <laughs> oh fuck no no that's that's too horrible. I thought radio worked like that normally. You get the info when you turn it on. <laughs> But we accept contrivances like that as mm. necessary to create interesting stories. Yeah. At what point does it become too much? At what point does it break your sense of reality? I think when it happens every time. It's okay to have one or two of those instances thrown in to help move story along because, frankly, if you're describing them sitting there cutting up carrots for dinner while they've got the radio playing and after half an hour, oh, now your interesting story comes up, that's tedium. I think but, it's not so much about waiting for interesting stuff to happen. I think it's when I read a scenario and it says, when the players arrive, this guy is doing this thing. Yes. And it's like, well, what if they arrive an hour earlier or an mm. hour later? Um, so it's... Yeah, I mean, what if they turned up Yeah, the day before? Or what if they killed that guy in the last scene? Sometimes these things don't seem to be considered. It seems to be very, this is what will happen. But I'm thinking about it more as a player than as a keeper. Because as a keeper, mm. I mean, you know, say they do kill that guy earlier and you know, it's written into the scenario that they turn up and he's there in the bookshop and you know, he will give them a big info dump if they approach him in the right way. But, but yes, they, they, they shot him in the head and he's now in the bottom of the quarry. Yes, like you say, yeah, he's got out of the quarry, he's still there. <laughs> he's big he's, his head. He, he's ye liveliest awfulness. He just yeah. so happens to be your monologue deliverer. It's, 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 it's the thing on the doorstep all over again. There you go, those uh, adhering to canon. A tape player starts playing in his pocket, even though he's laying there with a hole in his head. <laughs> and then they stamp on the tape player. I don't know, yeah. But you as a keeper have always got the opportunity to reframe that information in a different way, to have a different NPC relay it. Or... How realistic is that? The players will probably never actually realise no. that that's what you've done. So the only person who is affected by that break in reality there, or the realism of the game, is the Keeper. And as the Keeper, we're the ones responsible for creating that sense of reality, that we do make all sorts of compromises, we do establish contrivances, we do change things around. I think that is an essential part of creating that reality, even if we don't buy into it wholly ourselves it's almost like that uh, saying about you don't you like a sausage but you don't necessarily want to know how it's made yes yeah as long as it looks all right <laughs> on the front who cares what's going on in the background but what degree of coincidence or contrivance like that will actually break your suspension of disbelief in a game I think it really has to be context-dependent. Mm. It's going to be a gut reaction to something, whether it's, oh, well, that just so happens to be a coincidence. That will be the thing that really gets me. Well, can you think of any concrete I can examples think of where... Yeah. It's the one where you were running, Scott. Oh, fuck <laughs> you then, Paul. <laughs> no, no, you can cut this out then. Yeah. In the playtest for the Peru chapter, yeah. I ran from one bedroom to another and I wanted some water... And I ran in and grabbed the jug of water. I think I wanted the jug, actually. I wanted a vessel. And I wanted to just tip the water out of the jug. And somehow that became really difficult. It seemed like I couldn't just tip the water out of the jug. And I was like, well, why is this a problem? Because apparently it would take too long. 
I, in my head, what? I just pick up the jug <laughs> I don't and remember the water this at all. Out. Yeah, no, it became a thing that. Are, are, are you sure that it wasn't a question of getting into the room where the jug was? No, was no, no. I'd got the jug. It was like, oh, well, the water will come out really slowly. And I was like, well, what? Why is it? It's a jug. Like, if you tip a jug upside down, it pours out pretty quick. I was now yeah, doing a jug so... of water on a nightstand, but somehow it, it you know, I couldn't do it that round because the water was. In the jug, and it would take rounds for it to come out. Are you sure that I wasn't just saying to get to it and pour the water out and get back to where you were would take a round? It didn't seem like it, but... That doesn't sound like something that I'd say, Paul. (laughs) Well, (laughs) (laughs) so it's that kind of thing where... Maybe maybe, maybe there was a miscommunication between us, and I'm I'm quite happy to accept that. But it's that sort of thing where I do something in a game... And it's pretty clear that the consensus would be that's a normal thing to do. It wouldn't be difficult. But the GM throws up blockages and problems because they don't want you to do that thing or that it's going to, you know, expedite the scene or it's going to shortcut something in some way. And I have experienced that a few times. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. But beyond the sort of interaction with game mechanics or GM calls like that, in terms of, you know, sort of establishing the larger flow of events in the game, going back to that example I gave at the start of this, if you're running up to the top of that hill to try to encounter this cult who are doing something hideous up there, would it affect your suspension of disbelief if you got up there just at the right time as the cult leader is standing there over the human sacrifice with the knife up, ready to bring the knife down, just at the moment you turn up? Or would that be the kind of thing you'd expect to happen in a game like that? I think if the story had built up to that, then I really see too much problem. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess if I turned up at a cultist's house, staked it out for a few hours and then walked up and peered in through the window, and just as the cultist was raising the knife to stab the victim on the table, let's say, very time-sensitive event, yeah, I don't really have a problem with that. I think because, I suppose, I can imagine that happening. You know, I can imagine that that seems quite credible. It's a contrivance, but it seems a credible one. Yeah, I mean, if, if say, yeah, I mean, as opposed to him, say, wandering around lighting candles and incense at that stage and talking to one of his mates and stuff like that. Well, that's equally yeah. credible. Yeah, I think for me, if if it's signposted that it's going to take place at this time, then and you arrive at that time, then yeah, that makes perfect sense that you're going to see those events happen in that order. But if it's a bit too random that you just turn up at the house and all of a sudden, oh yeah, this, this happens to be the minute when shit's going to hit the fan, I think. Hmm, okay. Yeah, good job we're here then. To flip it round, I mean, you as, as a GM, the players turn up and, you know, it's a place where you know something bad is, is going to be happening. Do you feel any responsibility as the GM to make sure that when the players turn up, something interesting is going to happen? I'd also partly take it, especially if I'm running a one-shot, where if, if it's at a convention where I've got a defined time slot, I'll take a look at the clock and see how long I've got left. If I've got half an hour... Then then you'll overrun by three hours anyway. Yep. (laughs) I think, how long can I get away with before I overrun into the next slot? That's why I generally run in the evening slots. Yeah, you mean the next slot being 9am the next morning, though. (laughs) That's the worry. (laughs) Partly it will be, if there's only maybe an hour or half an hour left, then, yeah, cut to the end. 
and say, yep, yeah, you happen to turn what? up when the big showdown is going to happen and give them a reasonable time to play it out rather than it being rushed. And sometimes you can say that to the players, can't you? There's, yeah. well, there's half an hour left, guys. Let's cut to you yeah. arriving at the but, but hill. It's, but it's not even, you know, say, you want to bring the climax into that stage. But they've turned up at this house and you want to make sure that something interesting for the players to do happens there. Mm-hmm. How much are you willing to contrive events in order to make sure that they don't just turn up and knock on the door, oh, he's not home? or he's there but he's doing the dishes as long as it's interesting it doesn't have to necessarily be an event it Mm. might be something that they find it might be something that they discover it doesn't have to be an event that they happen to be there at exactly the right time when it turns up it's not i think the key thing is as long as it's interesting anything goes thank you thank you Once again, we would like to say thank you to everyone who backs us on Patreon. The money you give us, it pays for all our running costs, hosting costs, it pays for our time in putting the podcast together, and generally makes all this possible. So thank you very much to each and every one of you. And we have some new people to thank. A little while back, we put out the Blasphemous Tome issue four, and we had a lot of new backers as a result of that. We have thanked most of them, but the $5 backers get something special. They get songs. And, I mean, it's not really fair to anyone for us to put more than two of them in an episode. If you haven't heard the songs before, you'll understand what we mean fairly shortly. I thought you were going to say that it was unfair to call them songs. Well, that too, yes, absolutely. But we have two people to thank through song this episode. And our first song this week goes out to Rowan Badois. Thank you very much, Rowan. Yes, thank you, Rowan, and um, we, we hope you, you like this as much as your body will let you. Thank you, Rowan. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And our next victim today, the song goes out to Jessica Rivers. Uh Aha, who is a very active presence on our Discord server. So, yes, thank you very much, Jessica, and and sorry for what we're about to do to you. Thank you very much, Jessica. Meanwhile, on social media... People have been saying stuff about us on social media, particularly over on iTunes, which we always like to hear. Keeper Grant D says, Great podcast on many levels. This is the podcast that got me into listening to podcasts. Thoughtful discussions on all things Call of Cthulhu and Lovecraft, the mix of practical in-game issues with more philosophical discussions of cosmic horror and mythos always strikes the right balance. Scott, Paul and Matt are great at tying abstract discussions of genre back into something that can really inform your games at the table. I'm always excited when I get a good friend's notification of a new episode, 
I highly recommend subscribing. Well, thank you very much, Grant. I think that is absolutely lovely. Hey. And if anyone else fancies writing a review, these reviews help with visibility, they help with ranking, they help basically get the word out to other people whose minds we can corrupt. It doesn't have to be an iTunes review anywhere where you might get your podcast from. If you fancy leaving a review there, we would be ever so grateful. If you do leave it somewhere other than iTunes, please let us know so that we can find it and sing your praises in return. Now, there was also a lot of feedback about the first of our Dunwich Horror episodes. Mostly in the form of corrections. Uh oh. Apparently, we got stuff wrong. <laughs> we aren't historically accurate. Yep. Well, we're not true to Lovecraft fiction, apparently. So, Cthulhu Bob on blasphemoustomes.com tells us that. Just a note for clarification speaking as a Native American of one of the Algonquin peoples, Algonquin is a blanket term for several peoples under a set of related languages. Yeah, well, th- thank you very much for that correction. Yeah, I, I must admit, it's not something I, I know anywhere near as much about as I should. Mm. And yeah, it's, it's always useful to learn things like that. So, so thank you very much, Bob. And over on Google+, Kathy Lambert said, Just a quick note on pronunciation. Greenwich Village in New York City and Greenwich, Connecticut are pronounced in the same manner as Dunwich in the UK. Greenwich. However, there was a Greenwich, Massachusetts, located in the centre of the state, somewhat south of most people's guesses at the location of Dunwich. It was disincorporated in 1938 and covered by the Quabbin Reservoir, one of the possible inspirations for the colour out of space, and that town name was pronounced Greenwich. That was a detail I got wrong in my research notes. I, I remember reading about this, and for some reason I had the right place in mind, but I decided that was the one in Connecticut instead of uh, Massachusetts. So thank you very much for that correction. I, you know, that, that was me screwing things up. This is a whole minefield, really, this yes. uh, pronunciation. Where, where are we now? Uh, Buckingham. Buckingham. Locals would call it Bucknam. When I was yeah. a kid, we'd call it Bucknam. Yeah. And, and similarly, where I live, New Bradwell... Um, I mean, people these days pronounce it New Bradwell. But, New Bradwell? Yeah, exactly, in, in, you know, in the old Buckingham accent, which when I moved to New I'm Bradwell sure 26 the, years the ago... New Bradwell accent, Scott, not the Buckingham accent, <laughs> well, but yes. Bu- Buckinghamshire, yeah, I yeah, say, yeah. yeah. Exactly that. I mean, older people, when I first moved there 26 years ago, some of them still had Buckinghamshire accents. It was exactly that, New Bradwell. Mm. But, yeah, these days, that is completely lost. Mm. And also from Henry Haster over on Discord... So, on the subject of pronunciation of Dunwich, Dunwich, I'd like to propose a third option. Dunch. Ah, I've lived my whole life here in Dunch. (laughs) (laughs) Which I'm I'm sure is exactly how the people of rural Massachusetts speak. Aye. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad Matt got this one. Uh, Matt has a much better facility with with accents than either of us, just not with the right accents. I, I just channel my grandfather, that's what I end up doing. The backwoods country folk of such a rural area would most likely have developed a bit of their own accent. Yeah, mm. almost certainly. So, yeah. Dunch. Yeah, okay, I, I, I like that one. Dunch. Yeah, if you get two things and you can't agree, just make up a third. That's always a good, <laughs> Whereas a now good uh, backstop. I've now got um, Munch from Brooklyn Nine-Nine going through my head there. (laughs) 
good. I've no idea what that means. <laughs> oh, but, you uh, need to watch Brooklyn it's, it's, Nine-Nine. It's Munch, isn't it? Not Munch. Yeah, but they keep making the Munch oh, joke, I see, don't right. they? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that, 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 this has got me thinking then that the name of the story should clearly be the Dunch-Hur. Dunch-Hur. It's a Ta-Dunch-Hur. And to wrap up, let's have some final thoughts about realism in role-playing games. Well, then the question I'd ask is, how important is this topic that we've just spent two episodes talking about, realism in games, how important is it to bed our games as much as possible in either the realism of the real world or in canon to allow us to immerse ourselves in the game, to suspend our disbelief, to buy into what it is we're playing? I think when it comes to canon in particular, if it's something that's got a large meta plot or background to a game, things like World of Darkness, for example, I'll try to adhere to that as much as I can do because that's usually the expectations of the players I've got at the table where they'll be they'll have known and read a lot of the source books because that's the crowd I normally play those games with. If it's set in the real world, then I would pay attention particularly to the parts of the plot and the setting that are most integral to the background and the story of what's going on. And then everything else beyond that is secondary. Not to the point where I'll just say it's insignificant and completely ignore it, but there may be tweaks that I'll be prepared to make to that, like the emphasis may be on racism or gender inequality and so on. Those can get pushed out of the way as far as I'm concerned. They have no place in, in my game, so I'm quite happy to move that off the stage. But if I'm looking at particularly the an area that I've set a game in, I'll try and make it that it is as accurate and real-worldly as possible. It emphasises the horror if you've got a grounded, real setting. But but how about as a player? If the game itself deviates from your understanding of the real world, if there are mistakes or inconsistencies or historical inaccuracies, how important is that to you as a player? First of all, I'd ask the question of the GM to say, is this right? Because it might be, like I've used the example there, it might actually be a hidden Easter egg. It might actually be a plot mm. point that these do differentiate from the real world. I'll ask, is that right? And if they then say, yeah, that's the case, then, okay, fine, I'll, I'll run with it as you want it to be. But if it's then, oh, goody, I found part of the plot. Ooh, I feel quite good about myself there. How about you, Paul? I think it's a really difficult question. How important is realism in mm. the game? Yeah. <laughs> I think what we've done in these discussions, for me, is scratched away at bits of the surface of this and just exposed a lot of stuff and not resolved quite a lot of stuff. So there's a lot of layers to this about being happy with the game. It can be as fantastical as you like in terms of the setting, and I can buy into it and enjoy it, and I can accept it. Or it can be as realistic as you like, and then there's some bits in it that just break it. So it's really difficult to give an answer to that, I think. Hmm. I think the ultimate answer is, as long as I'm enjoying myself, I'm all right. And I'll, I'll, all sorts of things can be allowed to ride. But as soon as you start to feel dissatisfied with it, or there's something that really conflicts with something you know, and I think even if something conflicts with something you know, if you're really enjoying yourself, you probably let it go. So I think that, to me, is the measure of it. How much am, am I actually enjoying it? Because then I'm quite forgiving. I mean, for me... The Weasley answer, I guess, is it depends. It depends on a whole bunch of things. It, it depends on the expectations that 
the game we're playing sets up, the setting of the game, the premise of it, the particular scenario, and also the expectations that the players at the table bring along. This whole idea of the representations or the actions or agency of marginalised people in historical settings. If the, the premise of the game, if what we're exploring is the challenges these people face... Or if it's a, you know, an important part of the setting, then, yeah, I think deviating from that or, or, or whitewashing it is counterproductive and works against both the games and does a disservice to the historical reality. On the other hand, you know, the expectation uh, and the consensus at the table is that stuff doesn't matter, then, you know, it doesn't matter. And I think that applies to all sorts of aspects. If the group, if the players are happy establishing reality or deviations from reality within a grounded game, as we do in Pop Cthulhu the whole time, then I'm fine with that. Where it causes me problems is where there's the mismatch of expectations. I, mm. I think, as with so many things in role-playing, it comes down to consensus, it comes down to managing expectations, it comes down to communication. If we have proper communication within the group, between the GM and the group, between the person writing the game, the scenario writers and the GM, as long as everyone is on the same page, has got the right set of expectations for what kind of game it is they're playing, then I think anything goes. Well, that sounds entirely straightforward. Yes. <laughs> no, I think, you know, that, that, that's right. But wow, that's, that's a lot to ask. Mm, it is. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of frustrations with games come from breakdowns in that communication. So, mm. yeah. And just before we go... A little reminder that you can subscribe to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias wherever podcasts are found. Uh, we're all over the place now. We're on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as it's known now, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and, oh, you know, everywhere. So if you want more details, go to blasphemoustomes.com, and there, there's a whole range of subscribe options there. Well, until next time, it's a good night from me. It's a cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com Fun story, I have been used as a rudder on a boat before. <laughs> <laughs> My lips aren't built for this.